Mayhem Sassanacs, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week we're discussing 504, the company we keep. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander seasons six and seven, as well as anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of season five, episode four, The Company We Keep. First off, I want to take a moment to wish everyone a happy new year. I hope you are all taking time to spend time with your family and you're staying safe as COVID cases begin to spike again. Excited to be back after a holiday break and we are in the final rundown to season six. I have everything planned out and I think I am going to get through Monsters and Heroes, which is the ninth episode of season five. So I figured that would be a great place to stop and then I will pick back up again at the end of season six when everything is said and done. And that'll give us a nice little jumping off point to head into next Droughtlander, which I hesitate to even talk about because I don't want to think about it right now. But that is the game plan as of right now. I will be taking a wee break because I have purchased tickets to Outlandish Vancouver, which I am very excited about going to get to see some of the cast there. I think Rick Rankin, Sophie Skelton, David Berry, Duncan LaCroix, Stephen Cree, Lauren Lyle, and Cesar Domboy are all going to be there. So I'm really excited to get a three-day weekend to discuss all things Outlander with some of my fellow Obsassanacs. I hope that some of you are going to be there and that you can join me in the awesomeness that is going to be that weekend. So yeah, I just wanted to start off this episode with wishing you a very happy new year. And without further ado, let's get into 504. This episode was pretty good. I started to feel really optimistic about season five after this episode because it had some fantastic character moments. There were still some things that I wasn't quite crazy about, but overall could definitely see things looking up. Lots of good Jamie and Claire moments. I felt Roger growing as a character. I loved the connection between Brie and Marcelie in this episode. So lots of good stuff going on. To kick things off, I'm going to talk about the title card, Brianna's PTSD, and the whole storyline on the ridge because I feel like that's a very isolated thing to talk about before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, which would be everything that happens in Brownsville. Brianna's PTSD is really taking center stage. We know from the wedding episode that she's completely aware Stephen Bonnet is alive. Nobody has bothered to share that information with her, and I really think that that's probably a misguided action on the part of Jamie and Claire. They just want to protect her, but I don't really think it's protecting anybody. So Brianna knows that Stephen Bonnet is out there, and more to the point, she knows that Stephen Bonnet knows Jimmy could be his son. So she kind of lives in fear of Bonnet coming and taking Jimmy away from her. And that's something that we really see start to develop over the course of this episode. And later on down the track, her fears prove to be valid, which is a whole other thing that I will discuss at a later date. But it all kind of starts to simmer 
The way that the showrunners developed this episode was extremely clever, in my opinion, because we're getting little pieces here and there of Stephen Bonnet, which is very reminiscent of the books. He is not somebody that is front and center 24-7. He kind of lurks in the shadows and pops up every now and again. He's this menacing presence that you're never really sure when he's going to become relevant to the story again. And I think that that comes across very well in the way that the show has chosen to represent his character. We get it in the title card. I mean, we never see his face, but we're pretty dang sure that that is who is playing with that coin on the title card, right? And then just by the way that Mrs. Bug is describing the interaction between this Irishman and herself and Jimmy, it's very suspicious. And Brianna obviously thinks so too, but Brianna is hypersensitive to this kind of thing. So there's no saying that this was absolutely definitively Stephen Bonnet. We're never going to know for sure if it was him or not, but it's the idea that it could be him that has Brianna all worked up. And I love that Brianna and Marsley had a bonding moment, mother-to-mother conversation where we kind of get a chance to see inside not only Brie as a character, and Brie kind of has a chance to get some of these things off her chest that she's been holding on to in her worry and her fear over Jimmy and how she may not be sufficient protection for him. And then we kind of see things from Marsley that we haven't previously seen. We get an understanding of her home life as a child and the things that she went through, because even though she's using this message to a point to prove it to Brianna that thinking, no matter how long or how hard, doesn't make something come true, it's rooted in fact. She came from a domestic abuse situation where her father beat her, Joni, and Leary repeatedly. And it was a very terrible situation. And As any child would, she just wanted it to stop. She prayed every night that something would make her father or stepfather, she doesn't specify, whenever he was arrested as a Jacobite and imprisoned and he died in prison, that was kind of the end of it. But she's using it as a through line for Brianna that even though Marcelie wished her father dead, she didn't actually kill him. There was no action involved in that. It's similar to Brianna's situation that just because she thinks it's happening doesn't mean it's happening. Just because she thinks that Bonnet is out to get her doesn't actually mean that Bonnet is the one that is stalking her in town, inquiring after who Jimmy looks like, his mother or his father. It's a very interesting situation, but I was very happy to kind of get that information about Marcelie because... As a show watcher, Lauren Lyle does such a phenomenal job of bringing Marcelie to life that it's hard not to want to know more about her character. And I think that by giving her a bigger part to play in this season, they're really kind of growing their audience. They're very much about the strong woman image. And I think that this show has a full-blown cast of strong women. And not to mention the fact that I just love seeing Brie and Marsily have this sisterly connection. It never really made sense to me how in the books they don't have a more notable relationship. Because I would think that Brie and Marsily would have a sisterly bond. I mean, 
Brie never had siblings growing up, and Marsley has to, has to miss her sister. So... Yeah, it was kind of strange for me that we never really got any bonding moments in the book. So I love seeing it here in the show. And that's pretty much everything that's happening on the ridge. So we will move on to Brownsville and the mountain of crap that's going on there. We're introduced to a whole new cast of characters when we hit Brownsville. We get Richard Brown, Lionel Brown, Lucinda Brown, Alicia Brown... We get all kinds of people popping up, and I I get it. It's hard to kind of keep them straight when we're faced with these situations where we are meeting new people on repeat. It's just a constant parade of new faces, it seems like. And like last week, those two people we're probably never going to see again, and it's not like a noteworthy appearance, I guess. But these, these people, the Browns, are more front and center for season five, and I have a feeling into season six just by the way that season five ends. Whenever our characters first appear in Brownsville, we get Hiram and Lionel protecting people and defending Alicia's honor and virtue. And Roger tries to negotiate with Lionel because he's clearly the one that's in charge in this situation and clearly the one that has a wrong to be righted. Roger does his best, but Lionel, as we see later, as we progress through the season, Lionel is not the most easygoing person. He's very closed-minded, and I think that that is something for the Browns in general, and I felt that that was a juxtaposition that really I found quite confusing. We get two completely different ends of the spectrum. You've got a loving family that's willing to take in an orphaned colored child because she doesn't have anywhere else to go and it's not her fault because of the circumstances that she was born into and that she deserves a loving home. That is their view on things. And that's fantastic. It warms my soul to hear something like that. Lucinda, I mean, she's such a gentle soul and I just feel so terrible for her over the loss of her child. So I'm glad that she had this orphaned little Bonnie that came into her life and gave her purpose, I guess. That was great, and I loved that story arc. But I'm really confused by Lucinda's mother. I'm pretty sure it's her mother, because she's so tender towards this child and giving her every opportunity. And when she takes Claire up to the loft, she's like, I hope you don't think us disreputable because of our situation. And really just seems like a kind woman. But then you get the whole situation with Alicia and what happened there. It's a completely different situation and it kind of boggles because they're so close-minded about that. And with the Dr. Rawlings situation, they're like, oh, it's not good for anything but kindling. So I'm not really sure where I sit on the Browns debacle. I mean, obviously we know more about the Brown brothers and we will continue to learn more about them as the story progresses, but the Browns in general, I feel like they have the ability to be accepting and caring and kind, but at the end of the day, they don't have a lot of experience with being out in the world and knowing how things work, seeing different situations and being able to accept change. And then when it comes to a matter of Alicia having premarital sex with Isaiah, that is just, there is no negotiation on that. It's it's just bad. Just bad. Then that's all they have to say about it. 
Alicia really gets the short end of the stick in this situation. I mean, I grew up in a conservative family where having premarital sex was not encouraged at all, and in fact, highly frowned upon. I think a lot of people, especially in rural areas of the United States and in more conservative parts of the world, that is something that they feel as well. It's not a new concept by any means. The world is changing and progressing and becoming more modern. And so I think that it's easy for us to take that mindset and reflect that on the Browns and their reaction. But it's just interesting because then when Alicia gets a hold of the Dr. Rawlings Recommends broadsheet and is reading off of it, they're like, what, that trash? Why are you reading that? And it's just, Alicia seems so impressionable and young. And I really feel bad for her because she's kind of put herself in this situation where in this conservative household that she's in, you don't talk about that kind of thing. It's just a no-no and you don't do it. And I think that having that closed door relationship with the younger generation really only causes problems because especially as hormones start to rage and you feel that need, you can't go to your mom or your dad and be like, what is this? I don't understand. Why are we not supposed to do this? What is the thought process behind it? You know, there's not a lot of education in that manner and you just don't talk about it is the solution. So I feel bad for Alicia in that regard because all she knew was that she had a liking for this young stranger that had walked through Brownsville and he took a liking to her and It's a little bit on him, honestly, because she's young and impressionable, like I said, and he's married and very experienced. And so in a lot of ways, I really do blame Isaiah for the situation because, okay, you can view it in terms of how he did, where you just can't help who you love, but he knew that Alicia was off limits and he knew that he was married and it was not going to be kosher to behave that way. And he did it anyway. And as the more experienced and older of the two, I think it was his responsibility to avoid her and go back to his wife. And I'm sure that that is Jamie's point of view as well, which is why he struggles so much with the situation. But at the end of the day, it's a matter of Alicia and Isaiah loving each other. Jury's still out on whether they actually love each other. I have a tendency to believe that it's more lust than love, but maybe that's just me being cynical. I mean, we'll never know, right? I mean, unless Diana decides to write a short story about their happy ending. I mean, we do get a little bit more details in the book, and I'm not sure whether the show will follow up on that in season six, but... I don't know. I just have a hard time accepting that this is true love on the level of Jamie and Claire based on what I have seen. And I can see how Jamie struggles with Morton's word of honor whenever Morton swore wedding vows to his wife and then cheated on her. So how is Jamie supposed to know that he can trust him with something as serious as his oath that he gave Jamie at the fire in The Fiery Cross? So I get Jamie's apprehension about this situation because while I think Isaiah has good intentions, I'm not 100% sold on him. Good intentions pave the way to hell, as some people like to say. And um, just because you want something to work doesn't mean that it's the best decision or that it will work. 
And I definitely think that he put Alicia in a really bad situation as far as alienating her from her family and she kind of had to choose one or the other. And that's really crappy, especially for somebody so young. I mean, she's probably like 15, maybe 16. Yeah, that's really shitty. So I'm not I'm not 100% sold on this. I mean, I think it has a lot of good story elements and we'll talk about it uh, here in a second. But as far as a relationship goes, I'm not I'm not buying it. Anyway, so back to the Browns. Um, That covers Alicia and Isaiah. But the Browns, primarily what I want to talk about is Richard versus Lionel. So I think Lionel is really just a drunken troublemaker. And I think that it's not so much about protecting his daughter in this situation. It's about how it makes him look. I think he's more concerned with himself than anything else. He's a very self-serving individual and also, honestly, not that bright. Not that bright. You can see that in his actions. He's very rash. He doesn't stop to think about what he's doing. He just acts. He's a very reactionary character. And I think that when we get Richard in juxtaposition or comparison to Lionel's type of character, I think it really highlights the difference in these brothers. It reminds me a lot of Dougal and Colum. I mean, the Browns are way more rough around the edges than Dougal and Colum. Don't get me wrong. But the comparison is 100% there. Richard is much more intelligent and he internalizes things. He knows how to manipulate a situation. And he knows that if Lionel takes his men and acts against Jamie's militia out of retribution for what Isaiah did to Alicia, then it's probably not going to end very well. Because it's like Jamie said, Martin is a member of my militia and any action against him I will view as aggression towards the crown and label you all traitors. Jamie has that authority and he has Governor Tryon's ear. So if the Browns make a wrong move, it could end very badly for them. And Richard sees all of this. Lionel does not. Lionel doesn't see past the five feet that are in front of him. And Richard is better about looking at the full-scale situation and all the potential repercussions that could come because of their actions. And so Richard proves to be a bit of a blank page right now. There's lots of iffy things about him. And I think that some of the blanks will get filled in over the next few episodes. I think it's interesting that the Browns are against the regulators. I would think as someone in the backcountry, they too would feel the burden of dishonest tax collectors, but they agree to join Jamie's militia. And Richard Brown says, we'll join you, but my men answer to me. And Jamie steps up and offers his hand and said, okay, no problem. As long as you agree that you answer to me. Like just puffing his chest out a little bit, having a little bit of testosterone going on. Like I'm the one that has to answer to the governor. So you will answer to me. There will be no independent action going on here. This is a military operation. Brown doesn't take that lightly. Brown views that as kind of an insult, and he hurls it back whenever he offers Claire a room to stay in for the night. And Claire said, oh, if it's no trouble. 
And he says, what kind of man would I be if I let you sleep outside with the militia on a cold, dark night? And I'm like, oh, shots fired. (laughs) Um, It's an interesting, interesting relationship that Jamie has with Richard Brown. And the tension is not about to lighten, that's for sure. They do not get along. And I think that Jamie realizes that Richard is a bit more calculating than his brother and bears keeping an eye on. That's for sure. Now that we've learned a little bit about the Brown brothers and some of the key characters in Brownsville, we'll talk about the Brownsville situation as a whole. When Roger and the militia ride into town, they're thinking, hey, this is just going to be another stop along the way and we need to recruit men for the militia. No problem. And then They're met with a bunch of rifles pointed out the windows aimed at them, and they're like, oh, shit. I don't blame Roger for how he handled the situation. I think that Roger did the best that he could with the knowledge and know-how that he had. And I think that it's a little unfair that Jamie expects more of him than that. And here's the thing. With this episode... I noticed this on this this watch, and I'm feeling a little bit better about this episode after kind of putting this together. I think Jamie realizes by the end of this episode that he did expect too much of Roger, and that's why he sends him home with Claire. I mean, Roger views that as an insult, but in reality, it's it was the conversation that Jamie had with Claire, and Jamie's talking about how... Roger didn't defend his men and that if they had threatened the Browns, they outnumbered the Browns, the Browns would have stepped down. And Claire says, I understand that, but everybody's allowed to make mistakes. And I think Jamie realizes in that moment that he himself made a mistake, that, like he says, he made Roger a captain without teaching him what the word meant. Roger doesn't have military experience. Roger isn't a leader of men like Jamie is. He's a professor at Oxford from the 20th century. What does Roger really know about leading men? Roger, I think, also has a very different opinion of what is important when you're leading a group of men. And I think that is very key to understanding the situation as a whole because Jamie's been here, done that his whole entire life from the time he was in his late teens, has been spent in the military or in some sort of leadership role of some sort. That's just who he is. And so it's ingrained in him so much he doesn't realize that other people don't know the things that he knows. He just takes it for granted that he automatically knows how to handle a situation. And so I think in The Fiery Cross, when Jamie made Roger a captain, he was thinking of the immediate necessity to keep Roger out of trouble, keep him out of danger, as Claire asked him to, but it didn't really solve any of their problems because he wasn't thinking it through and thinking, does Roger know how to handle this situation? He just assumed that he would always be with Roger and that Roger could learn by example. And I'm sure to a certain extent, Roger has learned a lot from Jamie. But in this situation, Roger thought that it was more important to keep all the men alive and prevent bloodshed than it was for them to defend Morton. From a 21st century point of view, 
I agree with Roger's actions. I don't think he made a mistake. I think he did what he thought was the best possible route forward. And Fergus even agreed with him. When Fergus came to report to Roger that five of the men had left because they didn't agree with his actions, Roger turned to Fergus and said, well, what was I supposed to do? I had to do something. And Fergus said, I know you did and I agree with you, but they don't. I just wonder if Fergus at all even bothered to advocate for Roger with Jamie to tell him that, look, he didn't really have a choice. Like, I think he did a good job with the situation that he was given, but I'm guessing not because the tension doesn't really seem to ebb at all between Roger and Jamie over the course of the next couple of episodes. In understanding Roger's actions and that he was trying to protect his men We also have to look at the flip side of the coin and look at why his men were not okay with his decision. It's all about honor. And when you are leading a group of men into battle, they have to feel that they can trust in you and rely on you to be in their corner at all times. And they felt that by Roger agreeing to acquiesce and give in to the Browns and allow them to take Morton into custody, they felt that Roger was not in Morton's corner. And what they failed to realize, and I also feel what Jamie failed to realize, is that Roger was in everybody's corner. And he did what he had to do to have the best end result. And yes, that may have resulted in Morton being tied up and thrown in a shed, but nobody died. Nobody got shot. Everything was resolved peacefully, and I think Jamie is sort of halfway okay with how things are being handled in Brownsville until he realizes that he's losing men out of his militia because of these actions. I like that Jamie kind of used the moment with Morton as a teaching moment. This whole scene, it's a, it's a walking scene. Jamie's kind of asking Roger, like, what the hell were you thinking? Like, what is happening here? What's this um, situation that you've gotten us involved in? And Roger's explaining his knowledge of history and why he chose to do what he did. Jamie rolls his eyes like, oh, God, here we go again. Like, Roger is such a educated thinker. I feel like he's always using his book knowledge and trying to apply it to real life situations. He's one of those people. Um, doesn't have a lot of practical knowledge, but he has a lot of book knowledge. And so he's referencing all these times in history that in exchange of goods or alcohol has stopped an advancement of soldiers. And he was thinking that, well, if I give them the whiskey, hopefully that will ease tensions enough until Jamie gets here and he can resolve the issue. So, I mean, I think Jamie was okay with that. But the teachable moment comes when he explains to Roger why the men are upset with him. And I think when Roger fires back with, but I'm responsible for their lives and their well-being as well, I think that kind of maybe halts Jamie a little bit because he's never really thought about it that way. He's a fighting man, and Roger is a man of peace. And it doesn't mean that either one of them has less integrity. It just means that they approach things differently. And in the 18th century, action spoke louder than words. 
And it was more important to stand up and physically fight for your men, your family, your beliefs than it was to stand back and create peace and foster growing relationships with people. That's just kind of the difference between timeframes that we're dealing with. And I think Jamie realizes, I mean, he has to realize, right, that this is part of the issue. He dealt with Claire and her adjustment to the 18th century. So he can't, I mean, it it boggles the mind. Like he can't really truly believe that it would be any different for Roger when he's adapting to the 18th century. There's going to be that struggle there between what he's inclined to do and what he should do based on the time that he's in. So I think that Jamie realizes all of this, that yes, Roger's thoughts do have some merit, but he needs to have it explained to him that while his frame of mind has validity, it's not what's expected of him. And it's not necessarily his responsibility in this situation and under this context. So I think that Jamie realizes that's going to take more time to instill in Roger than the time that he bothered to take. And so whenever Jamie sends Roger back with Claire to the ridge, it's not because he's so fed up with him and he just wants to get rid of him. It's more so the fact that he realizes Roger's not ready for this and he needs more time. Jamie needs to take the time to explain things to him in a way that it's going to be understood and it's going to be received well. I don't think that Jamie fully realizes the rift that he's creating because Roger thinks that Jamie just doesn't respect him and doesn't have any faith in him. When in reality, Jamie is just like, this isn't the time or place to try to get this point across. He just needs to go home and I will work things out with him later. So it's an interesting set of circumstances for sure, but after watching this episode for probably the sixth or seventh time, I was starting to make those connections that I had previously been a little bit more close-minded to, and so that's why I like doing all of these rewatches because it's like, oh, but if you look at it from this person's shoes, you could see XYZ, whereas if you look at it from this person's point of view, you see ABC. So yeah, just a different way of looking at things. So then we get to the Dr. Rawlings recommends portion of this episode. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Claire Randall's fuck ups. <laughs> and in her defense, it wasn't necessarily her fault. I feel kind of bad for her because things just seem to happen around Claire. And it was really Fergus's fault that he didn't bother to look at what was on the back of this page of paper that he wrote down Jamie's militia call for. And the printer just was like, oh, that sounds good. Let's include that in the newspaper. It's a very crappy situation, but we're only just getting the tip of the iceberg with the mention of the Dr. Rawlings recommends. It's something that's going to be brought up repeatedly over the course of the next several episodes, but I love that they kind of are showing the slow and steady spread of Dr. Rawlings recommends, and they're also showing the reception that it is getting in certain places, and I think that more than anything is what has Claire worried because she sees how poorly the Browns are taking the reception of this knowledge they're like oh this this guy's a quack and whose business is it whether you get with child or not and how dare they interfere with natural ways and blah 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 you know 
it's a very intense situation. And I think Claire is worried now because she sees how bad it could get, how easily it could get out of hand. And she's saying, you know, do you think this could get back to the ridge? Do you think they could connect it with Fergus in any way? Do you think we have anything to be worried about? And Jamie's like, not unless they have a mind to hunt down the original source and blah, blah, blah. Spoke too soon, Jamie. Um, It's a really unfortunate situation. And I wrote in my notes, hello, foreshadowing, my old friend. It's just like, ouch, you know, whenever you hear something like that, because you know what's going to happen. And it's kind of painful to watch (laughs) on a rewatch because you're just like, "Mm, yeah, that's not good. Not good. Not great, Bob. So you've got the Dr. Rawlings recommends situation and the line (laughs) that Jamie has when Claire comes up and is talking about and he's like, who's Dr. Rawlings? And she says, me kind of in that like sorry and he just looks at her over his grandpa glasses and smiles and says Beecham Randall Fraser Rawlings do you have another husband I need to ken about (laughs) I love that he pokes fun of her and that is one of my favorite things about this episode to be honest is how we're getting back to OG Jamie and Claire like season four was a bit rough And Jamie was gone for the majority of the second episode. And then last episode was so freaking crazy, creepy, and unnatural that we didn't really get a lot of Jamie and Claire bonding moments. It was a very tense situation and kind of really weird. So it was good to see this episode and see Jamie and Claire just doing what they do best, which is be Jamie and Claire and be the relationship goals that everyone aspires to. They have this banter with each other. And the one scene in particular that I really, 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 really love is the walk in the moonlight where they're both tipsy and Jamie's just got done sword dancing or doing the Highland fling as it is in the show. They're walking down the path and they're holding hands and then he twists her around. It's all one very smooth maneuver where he twirls her around and kind of twists her so that his arm lands over her shoulder. And it is so cute. And it leads into the scene where they're just giggling and having a good time and being romantic. And she is like, I warn you, sir, my husband is as jealous as he is handsome. And then they're talking about being able to recite the alphabet backwards. And she's like, never mind. If you can recite either of those four words, you're in a better state than I. It's just good to see them so comfortable and lovey-dovey with each other because we don't get very many of those scenes. Like we get these really tense, passionate scenes and we get these fantastic quotes from Jamie. But these sweet moments are almost better to me than the really like dragonfly and amber lord you gave me a rare woman moments you know i love seeing these times when jamie is is talking about how much he loves claire but he's showing her in a way and in this scene he asks claire do you want to keep bonnie and i think she's shocked because i don't think she ever really thought about it like she kind of expected to find a good home for her and let her stay there. And she's been looking for a way to broach the subject of 
letting Bonnie stay with the Browns. And here Jamie's been working himself up to, okay, we're going to do this. Let's let's have a baby. And it's kind of crazy to see that they're both kind of not hurt, but disappointed in each other's reactions. And then they they kind of come to a middle ground. They start to understand where the other is coming from. In the very beginning of this episode, when we first see Jamie and Claire at the creek, we start to see the wheels turning for Jamie. He is just gazing at Claire with this little baby in her arms, and he's in love with the image in front of him. You can see it written all over his face. And it's like he tells Claire in this scene at night after the party. He says, I see you with Bonnie, and I think about how you would have looked with Brianna. Jamie's just been thinking all this time about all the things that he missed with Claire, all the opportunities he never had, period. He never had the ability to raise a child, and he wanted that desperately. He wanted a family with Claire that came too late for them to do anything about, and it was a super unfortunate situation. And now he sees that he has the opportunity to have that, and I think he wants it, but Claire... She's kind of past that. She's been there, done that. She's in a stage of her life where she's ready to be granny. She's not wanting to start all over from square one. And I think that's completely fair. I mean, she did her job. There's a phrase in The Fiery Cross referring to this particular storyline when Claire says that she felt as if her mission was complete that she had done her job and she had raised her child and that she was ready for the next stage of her life. And I felt like that was a good way to look at things. And also, I feel for Jamie because he never had that opportunity to have that completion. But I loved Claire's quote when she says, I regret that we were never able to be parents together, but regret isn't reason enough. And she brings up the point. She says, would we even be the best home for her? Because there's a lot going on. They know the revolution is looming, not to mention the obituary that Brianna brought back. I mean, supposedly there's a timestamp on this. Like Jamie and Claire only have so much time left. And is it really a good idea to bring a baby into the mix knowing that they may potentially leave her orphaned again? And I think that Jamie's okay with the decision that Claire has made, but it's just a beautiful moment between them that, you know, Jamie says, and I thought that perhaps if you wanted another child, I could give you one, one that you wouldn't have to suffer through carrying, that he has no life but her, but that he wants her to be happy. And I just love the sentiment behind that scene because It really does show that he's always thinking about her and putting her first and wanting her to be happy. And I think that that is something that all relationships could learn from, to put the other first. And if they put you first, then you'll find quite a bit of balance that I think is beneficial for everyone. That about wraps things up for today, but there is one final scene that I wanted to mention because I think that it is it definitely has value. It is the scene between Jamie and Isaiah when Isaiah comes back for Alicia. Morton tells him, I can't speak for my wife, but neither one of us were happy. We haven't shared a home or a bed for over two years and we have no children. And as Jamie is listening to this story, I think 
it's softening him a bit because he hears his own story in this. He didn't necessarily want to marry Leary. He wanted a home and a family and children, but he and Leary weren't happy together and they hadn't lived together for a long time when Claire came back into the picture. I think that Jamie sees a little bit of himself and Morton. Roger comes in whenever <laughs> Alicia and Isaiah are, you know, like deep in their reunion. And he says, what the hell? Isaiah has this fantastic quote. He says, are you both telling me that if someone told you to leave, told you you'd never see Mistress Mackenzie or Mistress Fraser again, you'd stand for it? That you'd obey without a fight? If either of you would go and leave the woman you love with all your heart, say it now. Say you'd go and I'll walk out of here without another word. And Jamie and Roger just kind of look at each other and cross their arms and shrug. And they're like, well, shit, <laughs> because they they know it's true. And even though I am not a fan of this Isaiah-Alicia relationship, I do understand a good love story, I guess. And Roger and Jamie do love their women. And if anybody knows a soft spot for Jamie or Roger, it is Brie and Claire. So. It was good. I love that that's kind of how they they chose to end things. There were a lot of good points in this episode. And like I said, it was the first episode that I was really like, okay, this is starting to look up. Starting to look up. So that about wraps up my analysis of 504, The Company We Keep. My quote of the episode is from that lovely walk in the moonlight scene where Jamie says, I have no life but you, Claire. But if you wanted another child, I thought that perhaps I might give you one. Because it's just so sweet. It's so Jamie. It's like the quintessential Jamf quote. So romantic. So fan-freaking-tastic. So quote of the episode for me. Performance of the episode was actually Katrina Balf. I thought that she did a really good job with this episode, especially in that scene with Jamie where she's just almost in tears over how sweet he is. And she says, if it's even possible, I love you even more for wanting to take the chance. The tears in Kat's eyes, it, it was just so good. So good. And the way she is with the little baby really just everything. Her interaction with the women while they were making cider, which I thought was really cool, by the way. I'm really digging all of these domestic little activities that are going on throughout season five. We've got candle making, we've got cider making. Later on, we have wool dyeing and things like that. But yeah, I thought Katrina did a really good job. I feel like her acting is so understated sometimes that it's hard for us to be like, yes, she is performance of the episode, but she's just such a constant. She's so fantastic week in and week out. And so I really wanted to give her a shout out this week. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up what I have to say. But I wanted to take a moment, as always, to talk about your thoughts on this week's episode. So without further ado, let's get into this week's listener comments. I can always tell when episodes aren't people's favorites because, like, the, the comment quotient goes, like, way down. So I had two people comment this week. The first was Casey Filson. She says, I honestly don't understand what Jamie's deal was in this episode. Roger is doing his best. It irritates me that their relationship is so muddled in this season. We definitely get the Roger will never be as good as Jamie vibes, and it irks me so bad. Let Roger be Roger and Jamie be Jamie. 
it's not and shouldn't be made out to be a competition. The Browns give me the creeps. The actors did an amazing job with body language to produce said effect. I like Isaiah and Alicia's plotline. I'm not sure it's totally necessary, seeing how we already know the links Claire and Jamie and Bree and Roger will go to for each other, but it's still nice to see, too. Lots to unpack in that comment. I agree with you on the Jamie versus Roger situation. I think that is nine-tenths of the problem with this season and the relationship between Roger and Jamie because... The writers are making it a competition, and I think that it's easy for the audience to be like, oh, well, Roger's just not as good as Jamie, or Jamie never would have done that, or blah, blah, blah. And even Rick Rankin has gone on record saying that a lot of times he feels like some of his better character moments for Roger have been left on the cutting room floor because it takes away from Jamie's hero moment, or it makes Jamie look worse off. And I think that Jamie can stand to be taken down a peg or two because people's opinion of Jamie is so high that, like, it doesn't matter what happens. Like, nobody is going to kick him off his pedestal. Um, He's always going to be Jamie. And I think that the character of Roger can stand to be picked up off the floor. Like, we've beaten the crap out of him enough. Like, give the guy a break. He doesn't have to be Jamie. So I completely agree with you, Casey. Just because he handles a situation differently than Jamie doesn't mean that it was the wrong way to handle things. And I think that that is something that people just need to get on board with because I'm honestly really tired of arguing with people about it. I don't find the Browns as creepy as the Beardsleys, let's put it that way. Although I do think that they kind of raise the hairs on the back of my neck. Like you just know that there's something off and something else is going to happen to where these guys kind of turn into villains. So um, I thought that was interesting. And then the second person is Lynette Rennebaum. And she says, a lot to unpack in this episode. I do believe that Jamie does set the bar high in his expectations of Roger. That being said, what father-in-law doesn't judge their son-in-law harshly? The king of men would, of course, want the best man possible for his daughter. Roger definitely steps up to the plate, in my opinion. The Browns seem very strange to me. You just get a weird vibe of the place right away. I loved how the writers of this episode compared Isaiah and Alicia's love for each other to Jamie and Claire and Brianna and Roger's love for each other. Love to quote Isaiah as he says to Roger and Jamie, if either of you would go and leave the women you love with all your hearts, say it now, say you'd go, and I'll walk out of here without another word. Yeah, it was a really great great quote. Like I said, I'm not a huge fan of the Isaiah-Alicia thing, and I don't 100% think it was necessary to the plot of the season, but it did have its good points. Like, I did like how it kind of reinforced the bond between Jamie and Claire and Roger and Brie as well. Definitely an interesting situation. As far as the Roger and Jamie relationship, I mean, I just think that, yes, I mean, Jamie has a right to be critical of Roger because It is his son-in-law, but at the same time, like, we've had an entire season and then some of Jamie being critical of Roger. In the books, their relationship is so much stronger, and Jamie and Roger work more as a team than against each other, and so I'm definitely ready as a viewer to see more of that. Like, I don't want them to be at odds anymore, I guess. Which, as we get through these season five episodes, like, we got a a little bit longer before they kind of start to see eye to eye on things, but uh, we're getting there. 
slowly but surely. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up listener comments. And with that, I bring my analysis of 504, the company we keep, to a close. Before we sign off, I want to discuss some Outlander news. We are getting closer, my friends, closer and closer to the release of season six. High praise coming from Diana Gabaldon this week, as she said, it is the best season she has seen since season one, which, wow, like, wow, because I honestly thought that season five was kind of killer, especially when we get into the back half of season five. Season one, even for me, had some slow episodes, I guess. So I am really anxious to see season six because she said that it's the first season that she's felt it doesn't have one episode that lags more than another. Like, they're all really excellent and full-blown episodes. Sam has said that some of these episodes are actually extended episodes, which I'm also really excited about. I mean, we knew that the premiere is going to be 90 minutes, but I kind of think from the way he's been talking that there might be multiple episodes that are extended. So I'm really excited about that. We have got some more details on things that are going to be included in this season as far as storylines, but I'm going to save that topic of discussion for my season six preview episode that I'm doing with Angela here in a couple of weeks. So make sure to stay tuned. I will advertise for that as soon as I have a date for you guys and a time for you guys. Like I said earlier in the episode, we are waiting because we're both attending Outlandish Vancouver January 21st through the 24th. So we are hoping to get all kinds of good deets for you guys there. And we're also hoping that there will be a official trailer released before we have our final discussion, as well as all the episode titles for all eight episodes that we are going to get in this sixth season. Lots more details been released. There are usually a weekly deet or behind the scenes interview or something that stars is starting to release as we ramp up to the premiere. They've been doing a release on each of the main characters. So far, we have quick little like 30 second to one minute interviews with Sam on Jamie, Katrina on Claire, and this week we got Sophie talking about Brianna. So I imagine next week we will probably get Rick talking about Roger a little bit, and I also have a feeling that we will get John Bell talking about Ian's story. And then from there, I'm thinking we're really going to start to ramp into the previews, trailers, behind-the-scenes details, things like that. We did get a scene released for Christmas. It was the scene that we previously had the script released for a few months ago in an edition of Entertainment Weekly. So we got to see what that looks like on screen, which was super exciting and really cool because I had really been picturing in my mind what it looked like. And it fit all my expectations. So really just melted me into a puddle. It was a great Jamie and Claire moment. If you guys haven't seen it yet, make sure to head over to the Sassanac Files. I shared it on my Facebook, so you should be able to access it there as well as, you know, YouTube or any stars social media. I'm sure I will include it there. So that about wraps up everything Outlander related for this week. I hope you guys are having a happy new year. Please, please, please stay safe out there. And I will chat at you next week when we are discussing 505 Perpetual Adoration. With all of that, I'm signing out for the day. Have a good one, guys. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.